morning, everyone. Peace be with you. Thank you. My name is Dodds. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. Um, in the last six months, we have spent time looking at Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. However, just as Kitty said, every fall, we set aside a few weeks for a special sermon series called Life Together. So we're pausing our study of Corinthians for the next three weeks, but we will resume at the end of the month, uh, just in time for Halloween, uh, which is spooky. So, um, but today we will be discussing uh, the Trinitarian gospel, uh, just like Katie said. So, the Bible is a long and illustrious story of redemption. It began with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit creating everything out of the overflow of their Trinitarian life and love together. And this included humanity. This included Adam and Eve, his first children who were fashioned in his image. And in this family of God, Adam and Eve were God's cherished children. And he welcomed them into his family as heirs and he placed them in a garden so that the life of the Godhead would flow through them, would multiply through them, and be shared with the rest of creation. And so within, within this Trinitarian household, Adam and Eve enjoyed the protection, the provision, the company, the intimacy, and the inheritance of God himself. But when Adam and Eve were deceived by Satan's lie, the lie that said that God was actually a domineering patriarch who was failing to supply all that was necessary for their flourishing, they rebelled. And as a result of their rebellion and sin, the shalom and life with the triune God that they were enjoying ruptured. However, as they were being led away from the garden, as they were being led out of the presence of God, he spoke to them, a promise of redemption. That one day he would come for them. That one day he would come to destroy the evil that had separated them in the first place. And he promised to reclaim them, to bring them back to himself and into a wonderful household forever. Now in our Western context, this idea of redemption is a little bit difficult to define because the word redemption is a very, very, very old word. But Israelites who had been reading this text for Israel, the the chosen people of God, they were actually very familiar with this word. In the Old Testament, which is the portion of the Bible that was written before the advent of Christ, before Jesus came, the prophet Isaiah spoke this. He said, Thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Now the word redeem here, this, this was a part of the everyday vocabulary of ancient Israel. This was a very familiar word. It was also a familiar concept because this was a tribal society in which the family was the access to the community. It was through family that you were linked to the rest of the world. And every family was overseen by a patriarch who was responsible for the family's well-being. This patriarch 
took legal and economic responsibility for the household, and he cared for every member within the family, including the marginalized. He claimed every extended family member as his own. And as a result, in this kind of tribal society, those people who found themselves without a family and without a benevolent patriarch, specifically widows and orphans, they were outside the society's circle of provision and protection. This is why in the Old Testament, God's instruction to care for the orphans and widows was so adamant. He was very aware of the widow and the orphan. And he's repeatedly described as the God who executes justice for the orphan and the widow. Now, interestingly, Israel in the Old Testament is often described as a widow and as an orphan. So as a people, Israel was also helpless. They were also without an inheritance. They were in need of redemption and adoption too. So to illustrate this, let's consider a small story of Ruth and Boaz in the Old Testament book of Ruth. Now, as this particular story opens, um, it opens with a widow named Naomi and her two widowed daughters-in-law. Now, all the men in their lives have died. They have no heirs, and effectively, they're facing starvation and alienation with no means of provision, no means of safety in their world. One daughter-in-law decides to return to the protection of her original family, but Ruth, the other daughter-in-law, decides to stay with Naomi so that she will not be alone. They find a distant relative named Boaz, and Ruth goes to him and asks him to redeem her. So in this situation, what this meant to redeem, for Boaz to redeem Ruth, it meant that he would marry her. It meant that he would pay off all of her debts. It meant that he would bring Ruth and Naomi into his family to take both of them into his household, to protect them, to care for them, to provide for them in every way, to even provide an heir. Now this would have been a very costly thing for Boaz to do. By doing this, he was putting pretty much everything in jeopardy, his life, his wealth, every, every resource that he had, while embracing the responsibility of a patriarch to become Ruth and Naomi's kinsman redeemer. But as the story goes, that's exactly what he did. This is the picture. This is the picture that the Israelites would have recognized of redemption. This is what it looks like to be redeemed. A defenseless family member who has been driven to the margins of society, restored to a place of security within a family at great cost to the patriarch of that family. So with that said, let's look at our text. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And what we see here is, in light of this story of Ruth and Boaz, we actually see here that the triune God of the cosmos is actually presenting himself as the patriarch of a family 
and announces his intent to redeem his lost family members. And not only does he agree to pay whatever ransom is required, but he has sent the most cherished member of his own household to accomplish this, his son, Jesus. Now, Apostle Paul says it this way in one chapter earlier in Galatians. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Here's the reality that we're sitting in. It's the same reality of Adam and Eve. Every one of us, because we are in the line of Adam and Eve's family, we have, an, we have an inherited that exact ruptured relationship and sin that separates us from our original patriarch, God himself. And being under the law is the equivalent of being essentially drowning in family debt. And in our sin has driven us to the margins. It's driven us into poverty from which we cannot on our own recover. And that is why God, the Father, sent God, the Son. Because when Jesus came into this world, what he did was he embodied the role of an obedient son, but without sin. And by going to the cross, he allowed himself to be subjected to the fatal penalty that by rights should have fallen on every one of us. And through this resurrection, through his resurrection, he claimed our entrance back into the life of the Trinity, back into that life of the garden, and he clothed us in his perfect record of righteousness. And when we believe that Jesus is Lord and that the Father raised him from the dead, we are in that moment, clothed in Christ. We are in Christ, and the Spirit of the Son, Christ himself, is in us by grace through faith. This is the role. This is the role of God the Son in the Trinitarian gospel. He is Redeemer. He is the one who pays our debt, and he is the one who welcomes us back into the family of God. He is Naomi and Ruth's kinsman redeemer. He is our eldest brother redeemer come to our rescue. But it doesn't stop there. The Trinity doesn't stop there. The gospel isn't only that Jesus died in our place to redeem us. Paul says that we are redeemed by the Son from the curse of sin, released from the curse of sin, so that we can then receive the adoption as sons, that we can be adopted as children. Now, adoption is an act of the free grace of God whereby anyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ is received as an adopted child of the Father. It is a legal and relational change in standing. In adoption, the family name of God the Father is placed upon us. The spirit of his son is given to us and we come underneath the canopy of the Father's care and provision. We are admitted to all of the liberties and privileges of the sons of God and we are made heirs to all of his promises. We become fellow heirs with our eldest brother, Jesus. Francis Chan, who is 
a pastor and author, uh, once described his experience uh, in fostering. He and his wife, I think at the time, already had seven kids, I think, and um, found out that there was a a 16-year-old girl who needed a a place to live. Um, And so they, they accepted, and he was funny. He, he, he said, I told my family that she was coming and my, a, a few of my daughters like fasted and prayed and he was like, I didn't fast. And you know, uh, they're like making her feel welcome and praying for her, uh, for her coming. This girl came into their home and she stayed for a little while. And then the possibility of adopting her became a reality and he said they were sitting in the living room She was sitting on one couch, he was on the other. And she said, so how long can I stay? And he said, I I can't even claim my answer because it came from somewhere else. He said, what came out of me was, you can stay as long as you want. Everything I have is yours. And he said in that moment, he said, I realized in that moment what adoption was. It's just like Isaiah said, I have redeemed you. You are mine. But that is what adoption is. You don't have a family, I'll bring you into mine. You don't have a name, I'll give you mine. You don't have anyone to protect you. I'll protect you. You don't have any money. Everything I have is yours. He said, it's actually through adoption that I began to believe that God really loves us. That he truly loves us. See, this is the role of God the Father. In the Trinitarian gospel, he is the loving patriarch who adopts us as his children. We are redeemed through the Son, and so we are in the Son, and the Son is in us, but we're also in the Father, as the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. This beautiful indwelling, mutual indwelling. But Paul continues. He goes on. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter eight, it's another book in the New Testament, part of the Bible that was written after Jesus came, Paul uses the metaphor of adoption to explain how Christ, how in Christ we are brought into God's family. And in that letter, in that Roman letter, he calls it the spirit of adoption. But here in Galatians, he calls it the spirit of his son. It is not just because we're alive that we get to call on God as Father. It's not just because we're part of creation that we can address God as Father. The way that we get to address God as Father is because it is when we have sonship with Christ is when we are adopted as sons. Through redemption and adoption, the spirit of the son is placed in us and then our ability to call God Abba, this tender, sweet, impossible to completely define address to God 
is itself the work of the Son's Spirit in us. It's the same Spirit that enables us to cry out to God as Father, and it assures us that we are, in fact, His children. And one precious and magnificent way that this is realized, this work of the Spirit, is in the sheer privilege of prayer. We, have, we now, redeemed and adopted with the Spirit of the Son poured out into our hearts, we now have conversational access to God the Father by the Spirit in the name of the Son. And as we pray in the Spirit, we're participating in this loving relationship of the Father and the Son. Prayer is a tangible expression of our union with Christ because in prayer, we're sharing and living in this eternal community. We're sharing and living in this eternal family and we are joining together in this divine conversation with God. There's a Greek term that describes this mutual indwelling relationship between each person of the triune God. It's called perichoresis. Peri means around, and kore is the word where we get choreography from. So through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're actually becoming part of really what is a divine dance. And in this dance, what one person in the Trinity is doing, every person in the Trinity is doing. So what... What actually gives us access to this? Redemption and adoption and the overflow of the Spirit. It all happened on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus was truly forsaken. The second person of the eternal Trinity was left behind. And in that moment, the Trinity existed as it never had before. The unity of the Godhead was broken open by the death of Christ in order to welcome us into that Trinitarian life and love. And because Jesus suffered that reality, no follower of Christ will ever suffer that reality to be made to live outside the Godhead. The penalty for sin and rebellion was not, for, for Jesus, was not just physical death. In our sin, we are condemned to be spiritually separated from God, the very source of light and life. So when Jesus absorbed the fullness of God's wrath, the Godhead was broken. It was separated, a paradox of all paradoxes. But in his forsakenness, Jesus saved us from our forsakenness. The son was forsaken so that many sons and daughters could be redeemed and adopted into the life of the family of God. And it's through that that we're welcomed into this divine dance. So our life together does grow out of God's life together, but even more than that, our life together is folded into God's life together. In essence, we have, in this wonderful dance that the Trinity had been operating in, 
in history past. We were written into the choreography. We were written into the story and asked to dance. We now, in this, are the bride who has been chosen and called to the dance floor to be led by the bridegroom, to bend to his timing, to follow his direction, and to enjoy the one who calls us his own. We will misstep. We will lose the beat. We will fall down. We will trip. We will let go. But we are always being recaptured by this wonderful patriarch and groom and called back into the dance. And this, this mutual indwelling is ours to enjoy through redemption, adoption, and the spirit of his son poured out into us. This is the role of God the Spirit in the Trinitarian gospel. He is the overflow of God's life in our life. He is the one who appropriates the work of the Son and the adoption of the Father to our hearts and minds. And through him we're caught up in this poetry and truth of this triune household. And the promise is is that one day all creation will be redeemed into this same wonderful dance. The planets and stars will shine like they were made to. Trees will clap their hands. Animals will bow in glad tidings and awe. And we will live in the fullness of God's divine dance together forever as a family within the most wonderful family. You know, after, after God used Boaz to bring Ruth fully into his family, she joined in the mission to redeem others. She became the great-grandmother of Israel's heroic King David. She demonstrated that a widow could be adopted into God's people and become his instrument for redemption and reconciliation. So, Sojourn, how do we image and extend the Trinity, the life of the Trinity, in our life together as a church? The, the list is pretty much endless. I'm sure, but maybe a few things to think about. Firstly, we, we're called to live lives of humble submission and obedience to God. If we wanna extend that dancing metaphor, I'll say it like Tommy Nelson once said it, you, you gotta dance with the one that brung you. And that's as country as I'm gonna get, okay? There's, no, there's nothing else. The Trinity is living in mutual submission and so our lives as a church can reflect that. Can reflect that mutual submission. We are now in Christ. We are truly brothers and sisters through the redemption of our eldest brother. We're all gifted but we're all submitting those gifts to one another in love and that means that we, we should be and we can be present in one another's lives. In our parishes, in our workplaces, our marriages, our friendships. Really, there's only, <coughs> excuse me, there's only one competition that the Trinity is really carrying out, and it's to outdo one another in honor. And we get to do that too. It's an invitation for us to image God 
in this world, to live in the joy of that and to also be able to express the joy of the Trinity who enjoys to outdo one another in honor. When we stepped into the life of the Trinity, we joined a family. The life of the Trinity is not autonomous. The Father does not operate on his own. The Holy Spirit does not operate on his own. Jesus does not operate on his own. He even said, uh, really, the words I speak are the words of my Father. I only do what I see the Father doing. The Spirit longs to glorify the Son, the Son, the Father, the Father, the Son, and so on and so forth. So maybe we should ask ourselves periodically, are we living in such a way that others would be glad to submit to this benevolent patriarch? Are we speaking of him? Are we living? Are we giving? Are we operating in such a way that other people would say, that is a God that I would submit to. That's a God that I would love to submit to. Maybe even more personally, am I submitting to other brothers and sisters? Am I submitting my life to other brothers and sisters? I think it, it probably can, it probably should mean more, than, more this than anything that if we've been redeemed and adopted into the life of the Trinity, that we are in turn inviting others into that life of the Trinity through the body of Christ, which means that every parish gathering, every prayer gathering, every Sunday gathering, every time you all are gathering together, every time we are gathering together as brothers and sisters, three of us, four of us, 10 of us, 20, 100, the Trinity is present And anyone who's invited into that space is invited into the life to witness the Trinity at work in his people and his people at work in the life of the Trinity. It means that every gathering of the church, small, large, is significant. And there is more than going on. There's more going on that meets the eye, just like when we come to the communion table. There's more going on than we can see. It's the reason we want to multiply more parishes and plant more churches. It's not so that Sojourn will become a household name, but so that defenseless and orphaned family members, children and women and men can be redeemed into the household of God. Every person who doesn't know Jesus is a potential future sibling in this family. And when we pray for them, we're actually joining the Son and the Spirit in their intercession. I know it's a temptation to look at the unity of the Trinity and look at our parishes and say, well, the Trinity is perfect and beautiful. My parish isn't. We don't do this enough. We don't pray enough. We don't study enough, we don't, we're not close enough, we're not out there enough, we're not evangelizing enough. I don't feel like this is my family. And, I, and I, can I just say that I, I agree that those things are difficult. They are difficult. It's not that they're nothing. But even when we don't reflect the level of perfection in the Trinity, we can say that without a shadow of a doubt that we can look at our parish and say, 
we have been folded and invited into the life of the Trinity. Because that's a work that he has done. He has redeemed us and adopted us. He, his spirit is at work overflowing in our midst. That is what is most true. So Lord, we want to see more of that in our parish. We want to see more of that. Please, by your grace, bring, help us, have mercy. We are growing up together into this divine family. It is what we will be. It's where we're headed. It's the promise of God that that's where we're headed. I'm sure that there are some times where the architect is looking at the blueprint and looking at the almost finished house and can't take joy there, but only take disappointment as long as these don't match. But this is where we're headed. This is the promise of God where we're headed. He is patient and he is kind. He will walk us all the way there. And Sojourn, I think just as an encouragement, when we think about the fact that we are heirs of the God who can speak the world into being, what will we not inherit? He's given us his son. Will he not give us everything that we need. He is our great hope for now and for always. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Lord, our our God who is three in one, we marvel at your, at the gift of redemption through your son. We marvel at the adoption as children, as sons and daughters into your household. And Jesus, thank you for your work. Father, thank you for your love. Holy Spirit, thank you for your power. And we could thank each one of you for the same things. It is a wonder to know that you are in our midst and that we have truly been caught up in a dance with you. Lord, will you make us faithful heirs? Will you keep us you keep us to the end? Will you make us faithful? Will you make us people who are eager to pray for those who don't know you and to welcome in those who don't know you, to welcome in orphans and widows, children without a home, mothers and fathers, men and women, without families, without friends, with histories they would be glad to erase? Bring those people here because we long and we're jealous for those people to know communion and life with you. We want to know that more. We want others to know it more as well. Father, save, redeem, adopt. That's what you know how to do. That's what you're capable of. Father, may our 
May every parish be an outpost of redemption and adoption. May every church be an outpost of redemption and adoption. May it be where your, where your spirit overflows in the life of your people and that people might come and say, I'd be glad to submit my life to this God and to this family. Lord, we pray for your mercy and we praise you. Triune God. We pray it in your name. Amen.